Leviticus chapter 23, we looked at these seven sort of appointed uh, festivals, or we might call them feasts, appointed times which God asked the children of Israel to put on their calendar uh, throughout the year. Some of them were one-day observances, other ones were week-long observances, but seven appointed times throughout the year they were to schedule into their calendars to have a special time together with the Lord, reflecting upon the things of God assembling together with the people of God and just giving their time to the Lord on special occasions, sort of biblical holidays almost that God purposely designed for his people. And now as we come into chapter 24, uh, we almost as if it seems the Spirit of God wants to emphasize to us as we get really some of what is just reiterative of what we've already looked at in prior chapters. It's somewhat repetitious. The Spirit of God brings us back now to some of the things that happened on a daily basis in the tabernacle and on a weekly basis in the tabernacle. And then he'll go back to speaking to us once again about some other things that would happen periodically, like every seven years they were to have a Sabbath year and then every... 50 years they were to have the year of jubilee so he then kind of goes back into this pattern of talking about some things that uh, would happen on a scheduled regular basis that god's people were to observe periodically and i almost can't help but to wonder if maybe this mentioned again here in the first part of chapter 24 of some daily and weekly activities that would take place in the tabernacle was almost the spirit of god's sort of uh, almost indirectly reminding us and maybe even reminding the people that God wanted more than just periodic observances and uh, you know seasonal occasions where they would come and be spiritual and reflect upon the Lord at the you know seven times a year that they were supposed to do that and I almost can relate to that in the sense of how Many people, if we were honest, uh, especially in our American culture, uh, people kind of can develop into that mentality with almost like Christmas and Easter. You know, all of a sudden Christmas rolls around and, okay, well, that's the one time a year we're, you know, going to go and attend a church service at Christmas Eve and we'll be a little more open to spiritual things. And, and then the same thing, of course, when Easter comes around, if nothing else, just culturally, you got to get your Easter dress and we get dressed up and it's almost a part of just the tradition and, and activities will again uh, will people will go and attend a church service christmas easter and it's almost like the seasonal visitations i'm going I'm to go visit god once or twice a year and and do the god thing and do the spiritual thing and and the reality is as we realize hopefully as christians where we're at now that god wants so much more than that uh, he wants more than just a few times a year on appointed occasions, which indeed they're special occasions, but he wants more than just a few periodic visitations and interactions with us. He wants daily experiences with us. He wants weekly experiences with us. And, and I can't help but to wonder if maybe that's why we see this resurfacing of some of these things mentioned in the first few verses, because truly they are very repetitious, the things we've already seen. But maybe God, right after the heels of those seven appointed uh, festivals, wanted to put this in here, sort of just a little subtle reminder for the children of Israel and for all of us as well. So we've looked at these things before. We'll just kind of glance through them. It says, chapter 24, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil, 
of pressed olives for the light. Now, this would be for the menorah. Remember, we studied back in the book of Exodus that uh, seven, uh, seven-pronged lamp stand. Basically, it was an oil lamp that was there in the tabernacle, one of the furnishings. To make the lamps, he says, verse 2, burn continually. And outside the veil of the testimony, in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron, the high priest, shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. So on a daily basis, evening and morning, he was to tend to the lamp. And it shall be a statute forever in your generations. And he shall be in charge of the lamps of the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. So uh, as we studied back in the book of Exodus in the tabernacle, when you came in from the eastern uh, side of the tabernacle opening in that first room, remember it was a tent with two rooms, a, a front room and a back room. And in that first room that they would go into on a daily basis, as you went in over to your right um, would be the uh, you know the, the the table of showbread to the left would be the the, the lampstand here and as they would go in these were things that were to be tended to on a, on a regular basis as the priests would go in and here we read mention again of how it was the responsibility of Aaron the high priest and the priesthood to maintain on a daily basis evening and morning they were to trim the wicks and remember basically this wasn't like a candle stand with actual candles that would burn down this was a an oil burning lamp with little receptacles and they would have to fill the oil and trim the wick so it involved regular tending and and the heart of that remember look verse 2 is that God wanted that light to burn in there continually again there were no windows in the tabernacle this was the place where the ministry was performed of the priests for the people in that day in Israel and so that lamp was the source of light it was the source of God's light in there to be able to do their ministries and to perform their roles so God wanted that lamp to burn continually. He never wanted the fire to be extinguished. He wanted the light to be perpetually burning. And yet, interesting, we find here in verse 2, again, notice that it was the responsibility of the people, the congregation, to supply the oil. So you have a dual responsibility here. It says that the children of Israel were to bring the pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make sure that that light would burn continually, not go out. So, it was dependent upon the people to continually supply continuous and fresh oil so that the light of the Lord in the tabernacle would keep burning continually and would never go out. And I think there's a very beautiful picture in that. You know, that, that, that it was the, the people who supplied the oil so that the ministry of God's spirit and the light of the Lord would burn and never be extinguished and that there would continue to be light in the tabernacle and the ministry uh, would perpetually continue on and, and how again that was a shared responsibility it wasn't just something exclusively for the priests the people had an involvement they had a part and a participation in the process Ephesians 4 speaks to us how yes God's called pastor teachers and evangelists and those who are gifted men by the spirit to equip the saints for works of ministry but it says that the whole body grows and is built up as each part does it share? 
And in a sense, as each one of us supplies some measure of oil, and of course when we think of oil, we often think of the, the, the ministry and the working of the Holy Spirit, and as we each supply some measure of oil, we bring some aspect of the Spirit's ministry and the work of the Spirit through our lives. That's what keeps the work of God continuously uh, operating and, and, and the light of the Lord burning continuously is when all of God's people sense their part and are participating and are letting God use them by his spirit in a sense make a well-oiled, no pun intended if you catch my drift, a well-oiled work of the Lord. Uh, that doesn't become extinguished, it doesn't go out, and here it was upon the people to supply the oil so that the lamps did not go out but would burn continually. And then it was Aaron and the priests, it was their responsibility to be in charge, that is to provide oversight and leadership, and it was their responsibility by God's sacred calling and duty to maintain then these oil lamps as it had to trim the wicks and to fill the little receptacles with oil and they were to do this evening and morning before the Lord continually. Again, every morning, every evening as they went in, they, they took care of the altar of incense that was there before the veil. And they also would tend to the oil lamp as well. But again, there was this daily process involved. The work of God, the ministry of God, it was a continuous thing. And it says that Aaron shall be in charge of those lamps of the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. Now, again, as I look at this, as we think of Aaron as the high priest, and we've talked before how many times Aaron the high priest is a reminder to us of Jesus, the book of Hebrews tells us, who is our great high priest, the ultimate high priest. And, and I like this. It was Aaron's responsibility, he was in charge to tend to the lamp to keep it burning and he was in charge and responsible to make sure that it didn't get extinguished and that it kept burning continuously. And I like that that responsibility was on him because as the high priest, that, that would make the people have a sense of really a peace of mind. Hey, it's not our responsibility. It's his responsibility as a mediator on our behalf to keep the lamp burning, the lamp of the Lord burning and God's work continuing. And and I think we can rest in that's That's Jesus's responsibility. The Bible says in Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, uh, he who calls you is faithful. And he will do it. And see, ultimately, yes, I have a part in the process, but ultimately the greater onus of responsibility and faithfulness and the one who's in charge of my spiritual life, the one who is in charge of the body of Christ, his church, and building his church, it's the Lord. The Lord, the great high priest, is the one who's in charge and who ultimately is keeping things and, and tending to the work uh, that belongs to him within his house. Verse 5 goes on to then tell us of the table of showbread, and you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake, and you shall set them in two rows. He's now talking about the table of showbread, which would be across from the lampstand there in the tabernacle in the holy place. And on the pure gold table before the Lord, verse 7, and you shall put pure frankincense on each row. The idea is the frankincense was there to be aromatic. Uh, it wasn't mixed in the bread. It seems to have been set next to it to give an aroma. 
it was there next to it, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Verse 8, notice, and every Sabbath. Now, this is mention of something that was done weekly. So the lamps were tended morning and evening, multiple times a day, every day. And, and there's an everyday thing that should be happening and experience with God every day. But then this was to be done weekly. And in the same way, I think we should have daily fellowship, daily experiences with the Lord, and, and daily experience with the light of God's Word and the light of His Spirit illuminating us and ministering to us. And in the same way, as we come together on Sundays or we come together on Wednesdays, it's, it, it's good to have those weekly experiences uh, with our great high priest and the work that he's doing as well. And here, it was every Sabbath, remember we talked about, that they were to then set in order before the Lord continually this bread taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. So again, every Sabbath they were to exchange out these 12 loaves, if you would, of bread that were there on the table of showbread. And again, the 12 loaves representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is often called the, uh, the bread of presence, which was a reminder to them of the presence of God, that God was the one who sustained them. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And, and this bread was to be fresh, like the manna that came every day, that the daily depend upon the manna, as we'll see uh, in the wilderness. Uh, in the same way, there, this was fresh bread. God didn't want it to get stale. It would sit there for a week, and at the end of the week, New loaves were made and it was exchanged. Uh, that bread that was taken out became provision, as we'll see in verse 9, for the priesthood uh, to be sustained as part of their compensation for their ministry and food allotted for their family. Uh, but this was routinely changed out on a regular basis there uh, on every Sabbath. Verse 9, And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire, by perpetual statute. So again, as it was changed out, uh, the old bread was consumed by Aaron and his family. It was part of their uh, food allotted to them, and new fresh loaves would be put back in their place. Verse 10, now this is a very, very little interesting vignette here in chapter 24. I've always just enjoyed this and the way this situation is handled. Look at this. It says, now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian. So take note of this. You have an Israelite woman uh, who has a son, but notice this child comes, I get, you could almost say from a mixed marriage. And in the sense of not so much ethnically, but spiritually, notice, he has an Israelite mother who no doubt is Hebrew by descent. She worships Jehovah God, but then she has a, he, this child has an Egyptian father. Uh, we talk about the mixed multitude that some of the Egyptians came out of Egypt with the Israelites when they traveled, but many of those people who became a mixed multitude among them caused a lot of problems among the congregation of Israel because they were in their midst but they were not, in a sense, devoted to Jehovah God in the same way that they were. They assembled with them, they gathered with them, but they brought with them a lot of the pagan ideas and false worship from Egypt, which caused a real intermingling and a lot of problematic situations we see for the congregation of Israel. So here you have this marriage, not just ethnically is it a mixed marriage, but no doubt spiritually you have probably a Israelite God-fearing mother and you have this other parent who's Egyptian. I mean, you know, Egypt is an always, always a type of the world many times in the Bible and a type of the, the, the old life, the worldly life. 
So this father, no doubt, has his Egyptian influences, which is always very confusing for a child. It's always very difficult for a child when they're getting one signal spiritually from one parent and they're getting completely contradictory message that's worldly and Egyptian, in a sense, from the other parent because it's presenting two different worlds to them. And the tragedy is it is very difficult, especially for a young child, to be able in the midst of that to gravitate towards that which is godly because the flesh naturally wants to gravitate towards, well, look, I love both my parents. I'm supposed to look up to my parents. That's natural. You have love and affection for your parents. And the flesh naturally wants to gravitate towards the unbelieving and follow in those patterns and those pursuits just because it's natural. I mean, by the grace of God, can the Lord override and cause a child to say, no, I, I want to take the godly pursuit? Yes. But it causes a tremendous confusion for children when they're raised in this environment. We see very early on how, again, this idea of believer being married to unbeliever, it's never a part of the heart of God because it causes such havoc and confusion in the offspring of those households. It causes a great detriment, not just upon the marriages that are difficult, but it causes a tremendous stress upon the children as well. And look at the outcome even in our story here. It says that this son of this Egyptian father, Israelite mother, went out among the children of Israel. So he's out among the congregation of God's people. And the man of Israel, uh, man of Israel, and they fought with each other in the camp. So a, a fight, some type of a scuffle breaks out. And the Israelite woman's son, the one who's being referred to here with the Egyptian father, blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. And of course, like always, they, hey, who's your mama? What's your last name? You know, I don't know how it does turn out. Remember, whatever you do, you carry my last name. You know, well, look, nothing different in the Bible. His mother's name, the parents always get shamed when the kids misbehave, right? His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And the Bible just puts that in there for us. And they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. So, this fight breaks out. Again, it almost seems to intimate that this young man is probably the trouble starter, the one who provokes something. He goes out among the camp. He starts a fight. And then in the midst of the fight, the thing the Bible hones in on is it says that this young man begins to blaspheme the name of Yahweh and curse him. Now, Please understand, this is not indicating that he used profanity, that he said a few curse words, you know, your mama and blankety blank. You know, it's not what this is talking about here. This is purposely zeroing in on the fact that in some way he spoke very derogatory and disgracefully towards God himself. That he was, it says, blaspheming the name of the Lord. That is publicly against maybe the young man that maybe he was, who knows, you know, persecuting or fighting with or among all the people around him. He starts to call down curses upon Jehovah God. He begins to speak in a way that is very dishonoring, very disgraceful to speak blasphemy and to curse the name of Jehovah God in the midst of God's people. And again, it says... As this took place, verse 12, look what this says, they took him and they put him in custody. I love verse 12, I have it starred, that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. So as this happens, they bring him to Moses, they tell Moses what happens, and Moses no doubt is thinking, well, listen, if, if this man was just a, 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 
you know, sincere, genuine Jewish young man, I might know exactly what to do with him, but I'm not sure if I know how to handle this because he has an Egyptian influence and an Israelite influence. And, and I appreciate the humility of Moses as a leader. In essence, he communicates, you know what, I'm not really sure what the mind of the Lord would be in this matter. I mean, I have the principles of God's word. We have the statutes of God's word that we're not to take the Lord's name in vain. But, you know, I'm not 100% sure exactly how God would have us deal with this situation. So we need to just put this situation in a holding pattern. And we need to seek the mind of the Lord. And we need to find out what's on God's mind in regards to what the consequences should be, how to handle it, how we should deal with this situation. And I love this, that Moses, as a leader among God's people, didn't feel the need to feel that he had the instantaneous answer for every situation. But instead, there was a humility. It tells us in, in Psalm 25, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. It says, the humble he guides in his way. And there's a tremendous wisdom to having humility at times when a situation arises. Maybe it's not this. Maybe it is a time when you're providing leadership as a father in your home and you have to deal with the situation or as a husband and the head of the household and you don't exactly know what to do. Look, sometimes there's wisdom in just saying, I'm not really sure. I don't just know the answer, right? So I, I, I need to just kind of put this in a holding pattern and I need to pray over this a little bit. And I need to get in the word and maybe seek counsel and I need to find out what the mind of the Lord is. I know what's in my mind and I thank you for telling me what's on your mind. <laughs> But I need to find out what the mind of the Lord is in this. And ultimately, that's what God wants us to do, that we would discern the will of God. And this is such a beautiful, you know, incredible, wise pattern, whether it's providing leadership and just getting in our everyday lives. It's a good thing once in a while when you're not sure what to do, to don't do anything right away. Just put the situation in a holding pattern, pray Seek the Lord, get in his word, seek godly counsel, and through doing that, look at chapter 24, verse 13, the Lord spoke to Moses. See, if you do that, the Lord will speak to you. If you genuinely want to know the mind of the Lord on a matter, the Lord will speak to you. But give him a chance to speak to you what's on his mind, that you would then be able to implement that, whether it's providing leadership whether it's making decisions and affairs and situations that arise. I just, I love that verse. I think there's such incredible wisdom to the way that this is handled. Uh, and here, so maybe again, for a day, for a two, for, for a period, they just kind of bring it before the Lord. And then the Lord, again, notice, because Moses was the one who sought his mind, he speaks to Moses and says to him, honoring the thing that he had just done. Verse 14, take outside the camp him who is cursed, and let all who heard him, so those who were actually witnesses of this, if they witnessed it, then they were going to validate that it was true because it was going to be a severe punishment, notice, to lay their hands on his head to acknowledge, yes, we concur, we heard him speak these horrific, blasphemous things against our God, and let all the congregations stone him. So it was a capital offense. I mean, this was a severe Severe punishment that God called to be meted out. Again, which just, let me say this. If nothing else, this shows us very clearly that disgracing the Lord and speaking in dishonorable, disgraceful ways that are detrimental to the character and the nature of God, to tear down who God is, to speak against God in his ways, which many, many people do, uh, 
is obviously a pretty serious offense before God. Here, God issued capital punishment against this guy for blaspheming in the midst of the congregation. Now, listen, I could sit here tonight and speculate, well, why and how come? And you can read commentaries. Well, this is why. You know, I, I don't, I'm not going to apologize for God. He's God. <laughs> if God wants to say, I take that that seriously, that capital punishment is the crime, that God would say that person needs to be removed. They need to suffer the consequence of what they've done. And potentially because God sees that as so detrimental in the effect it could have on other people's outlook towards God or you know, perspective towards God, God said you need to rid that individual from the society. You need to remove them. Boy, I'll tell you, that apparently it is pretty serious when people speak in derogatory and very blasphemous ways towards God. It makes me shudder for what God's perspective is towards what some people do in modern-day media and entertainment and television because apparently this is pretty serious to God. God took it to heart pretty strongly, so God tells them to stone him, telling the children of Israel, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him, verse 16, the stranger as well as him who was born in the land when he blasphemes the name of the Lord. And again, notice verse 16. This seems to be part of the emphasis. The stranger as well as him who was born in the land. So what God is in essence saying is, listen, no exceptions. And maybe this is what Moses wasn't sure about. Do I give an exception to this young man because, you know, he's got an Egyptian father? And maybe the young man was even saying, well, look, you don't understand. I mean, if you knew my upbringing, if you knew the dad that raised me, I mean, yeah, I had a godly mom, but I had this deadbeat dad. So that's why I did what I did. Or that's why, and, and, and again, not that there shouldn't be compassion towards those who have to do, but God says, listen, but, but, but you, you can't play the victim card here. In essence, God's saying everyone must bear responsibility for their own actions, their own choices, their own decisions. People must take responsibility. That's the way God operates. Personal responsibility for one's own actions and decisions. And, and here God says, look, whether they're a foreigner or whether they're a native-born Israelite, uh, same just rule applies for both. Uh, no exceptions. There was to be equality. And again, maybe this was what Moses was trying to figure out, and it's good he put... Uh, the situation in a holding pattern and he sought the mind of the Lord. Again, because this is a difficult thing. Do you think there would have been people saying, what? Stone the guy? I mean, don't you think that's a bit severe, Moses? I mean, that's not really logical. I mean, that, that seems a little radical. That, that doesn't line up with human reasoning. That, that doesn't jive with emotions. It doesn't seem... And again, but see, in situations, there may be times when you seek the mind of the Lord that God may lead you to do something that it doesn't always square with logic. It may not always line up with people's emotions or preferences. It may not line up with what visually looks right. But again, the Bible says that we walk by faith and not by sight. Uh, that we don't look at things that are seen, but things that are unseen. And, and so that's why it is important to know the mind of the Lord. So that when people are giving you a piece of their mind, you can hold on to the mind of the Lord and say, look, I, I sought the mind of the Lord, so I'm confident with this. I'm at peace with it. I'm comfortable. And so therefore, I can carry this out. Because sometimes what you have to carry out is difficult. It may be a difficult decision that you have to make. But if you have the mind of the Lord, you have that sense of confidence and assurance 
to follow through and to just trust the Lord in faith as you implement obediently what he's shown you to do. Verse 17 then goes on to say, and whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Again, and the Bible has shown us that God makes a distinction uh, between those who commit premeditated murder where they you know, lay in wait to put somebody to death in a, a murderous way as compared to involuntary manslaughter or putting someone to death in war uh, or combat that God shows a distinction here. Again, the idea is, is murder, putting someone to death in a premeditated way uh, out of anger and malice. And again, Genesis 9-6, all the way back from the book of Genesis. Uh, whoever sheds uh, man's blood by man, God said, his blood shall be shed. That, that, that murder was a capital crime. Uh, that God instituted that all the way back from the book of Genesis prior even to the Mosaic law. Verse 18, and whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. So again, the idea there is a law of restoration or making proper restitution. If you put to death someone's animal, again, that was in many ways like their tractor. It was a, a major uh, farming uh, implement that they would utilize their animals in their field. So you had to make restitution uh, where it was necessary. God required that. So it kept civil uh, peace among the people. Verse 19, if a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor. So again, if there's some conflict, something happens, uh, he has done, so shall it be done to him. Verse 20, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so it shall be done to him. So uh, here God institutes this concept of how uh, the, 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 the punishment should meet the crime. Uh, we carry that over even into our American uh, civil justice system. Now, unfortunately, you know, I'd be the first to say that we don't always carry that out probably the way that we should quite often. But the ideas and concepts of even our judicial system have come from many of the things that you find in the book of Leviticus and in the Bible. And some people look at this, and again, they think, well, goodness gracious, I mean, what's the Lord saying that for? I mean, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I mean, where's mercy and love and forgiveness? Well, understand, there are a few reasons that God implements what he does here where he says, look, uh, th there is to be a just punishment to meet the crime. One reason, very simply being, to maintain order uh, and law in a society. If people know there's no deterrent or no consequence or no punishment, well, humanity's corrupt. People will just do whatever. If there's no sense of that if I do something hurtful or harmful, I'm going to experience some type of a consequence for it, you know, humanity unrestrained <laughs> will just be out of control, and God understands that in human nature. Again, back from the book of Genesis, it says that God saw man's heart, and it was only evil continually. Remember in the days of Genesis, there was great wickedness and great violence upon the earth. So here God puts something in place to restrain humanity and their aggression and their sinfulness, their, you know, their selfishness and their animosity towards one another at times. But there are two other things that are being indicated here too. The reason for this idea, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, really is twofold. First of all, so that no punishment would be too lenient. That there would be a fair and an equal punishment that meets the crime and the violation. That they would never be too lenient in the judicial rendering of punishment against an offender. And also, which many times people overlook, it's also so that punishments would never be too severe. 
And all you got to do is understand the nature of humanity to understand why that's important. People think, yeah, that's right. An eye for an eye. And, and, but see, that's not how people think. I mean, I can tell you firsthand, in my flesh, if you poke out my eye, I'm going to poke out both of your eyes. Do you understand what I'm saying? If, if you punch me and knocked out my tooth, I want to knock out your tooth, break your nose, you know, uh, fracture your skull. I mean, a few other things in it just because we're not, we're not content with just, okay, well, equal retaliation. If you did this to me, then at least equally. No, we, we want much more severe and we want to be much because aggression, wrath, anger takes over. So God says, no, we, there needs to be restraint on this. A, a just punishment meets to crime. You know, a, a, an eye for an eye, that, that's sufficient. You don't get a second eye. You don't get, you know, you, you don't get to do that. So God was protecting in civil order as they use this as judges in the land so that no punishment would be too lenient because that's not good for a society, but at the same time that punishments wouldn't be too severe and in the same way that there would be restraint and balance in these things. Now, of course, Jesus addresses this in the New Testament when he says, you have heard it said, you know, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, but I say unto you, and then he begins to speak about loving your enemies, and if you get struck on one cheek, turn them the other cheek. In other words, don't do these things. But understand, Jesus was addressing that this was a civil law given to maintain government and societal order. Jesus is addressing what became to the Pharisees in their hearts, a justification for personal retaliation whenever anybody did something to them. In other words, you know, you offended me, you said something that hurt my feelings or, or angered me, so I have a right always to retaliate in some way because, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth, and, and Jesus was dealing with the personal attitude in the human spirit where people wanted to justify that somehow this could be used for the the uh, justification of personal revenge in every situation. So every time somebody offends me, hurts me, or angers me, I have a right to at least do something back to them. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're missing the whole spirit behind that. That was a civil regulation. In a personal level, you should be marked by compassion, forgiveness, willingness to deal with at times pain and absorb it like Jesus himself would and give back love and grace and extension to that. So verse 21, he goes on, whoever kills an animal shall restore it again. Whoever kills a man shall be put to death, the reiteration of above. And you shall have the same law, God emphasizes once again, notice the same law for the stranger and for the one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. And then verse 23 picks back up where it left off from earlier. And then Moses spoke to the children of Israel and they took outside the camp him who had cursed, that young man that we talked about earlier, and they, notice, they carried out the judicial sentence. They stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded. Chapter 25 now takes us back into some of the uh, sort of calendar activities they were to schedule and to, uh, to fulfill as God directed them. The first thing we see in chapter 25 verses 1 through 7 is what we often call the sabbatic year. Uh, he says in verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land, that is the land of Canaan that they'll be journeying towards, which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Again, a Sabbath was a rest. Remember, every seventh day on the Sabbath, they were to rest. They were to cease from their labors. 
uh, and they were to to rest. Well, here God's talking about a a Sabbath rest for the land itself. As they were an agrarian people, they would work the land agriculturally, develop their crops. They were to work the land for six years. They were to cultivate it. They were to plow it, to sow it, to reap it, to harvest it, and they were to work it well and be industrious and productive for six years. But God said in the seventh year, just give the land a rest and allow it to go fallow and don't work the land in an organized way. Again, verse 3, six years, notice, you shall sow your field and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. And you shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. And what grows of its own accord of your harvest, you shall not reap nor gather the grapes of untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, you and your male and female servants, your hired man, and for the stranger who dwells with you, also for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, and all its produce shall be for your food. So God speaks of how, and you know, it wouldn't be bad, would it? Every six years, you got a one-year vacation. <laughs> I think we should write up something for Congress? Well, legislation, maybe? You know, who wants to run on that tab? Every six years, this wasn't a bad deal. For six years, you worked, and then on the seventh year, you got a one-year, and, and catch this, it was a paid vacation, as we'll see later in the chapter, because God supplied to carry them through until they turned back around and worked the land, and ultimately it produced a next crop and harvest for them. Uh, and again, the whole purpose behind this, verse 23, God is going to say is because the land is mine. So God says, the land, he says in verse 2, the land that I give to you. The point God's making is, look, the land belongs to me. It's just a stewardship. Your form of provision, occupationally, which was the land for them, God says, look, it all belongs to me. I provide you the opportunity to work the land, to till the land. It's a stewardship. You're on my land. I've given it to you. So we're going to operate according to my protocol, how I want to provide for you. Yes, God called them to work, but God was the ultimate source of their provision and wanted to be in control of that. And God said, work for six years, and the seventh year, just let the land rest. Now, this was an incredibly, and scientifically we know this today, this was an incredibly wise soil conservation process because by every seven years just letting the land lie and rest important nutrients would be replenished back into the soil so that the soil was not overworked and depleted and then it became unfertile and unproductive so by giving it just like the body god understands it needs to rejuvenate so god says six days go at it for six days if you want to go out for six days go at it. but but one day a week that body needs to slow down and just rejuvenate and rest and focus on spiritual and eternal things. And, and God says, same pattern with the land. So it could be rejuvenated, the nutrients could replenish itself, the land could be revitalized before they would then go back and begin to work it again. And it also provided rest for all of their servants, it says there, and for all of their animals in verse 7. So God graciously provided rest and restoration for them. Now, he makes this implication there in verse 5 and 6, how what grows of its own accord, they weren't to reap, but then he says, verse 6, that it could be food for you, whatever the Sabbath produced uh, during that year. The idea very simply is this. 
is obviously they couldn't stop what was going to still be just sort of the automatic natural growth. There would still be some things that would, would blossom out of their fields and their vineyards because they had been working it. Uh, and God here wasn't being reasonable. He said, look, I'm just asking you no organized harvesting, not the way you typically plow and sow and reap and harvest, no, no organized work. But he says, whatever the land yields just naturally, as you're walking through it, as you know, people of the land are walking through it, the poor are walking through it. You could, you know, pluck a, a piece of fruit off of the, the tree and eat it or take, you know, s s some kernels of grain or whatever. God was saying, that's okay. But it was the cessation of work and giving a land of rest that God was asking them to observe here. Now, we know this becomes very important because ultimately, remember, this is what causes the children of Israel to end up going into captivity, we'll see later in the Old Testament, into Babylon for 70 years. And the reason is, if you remember, is that every seven years the land was supposed to rest, and the children of Israel apparently ignored this for a period of 490 years. So basically, you take 490 years, you divide that by seven, that means they owed God 70 years. Sabbath years for the land to rest that they never gave the land rest. So as a part of their disobedience in other ways, God finally called them to account and said, look, if you don't want to give the land rest, uh, you're not going to rob me of what I said belongs to me. So God says, I'll just kick you out of the land. So the land is going to get what I say the land is going to get and God is going to receive what belongs to him rightfully. So God says, I'll just move you out of the land for 70 years. And so God put them into captivity for 70 years and gave the land, which is just a good reminder that you can never rob God. God is going to get what belongs. He'll get it one way or the other. We can give it to him in the way that we should give it to him, properly and honorably, and trusting him in faith. Uh, or we can try and cut corners and, and keep and hold back from God what he deserves or what belongs to him and the way he says to do things for whatever reasons we do it. And there are many reasons we do but ultimately, it never works out for us in the end. It always works out for him. Now, keep in mind, why would it be a temptation? And here's the thing. You think, why would they ignore that? Work six years and have a one-year paid vacation? Who would not, why would you not want to do that? Why would you not want to take a Sabbath year off every seven years? Well, think about it. Two very things would be common temptations, which is just typical to humanity. Number one should be very obvious in your mind, greed. Greed, because here's what would happen. It's, it's going to tell us in our, well, rather than say, let me just put you ahead of it. Look over to chapter six, uh, 25, verse 18, because this kind of ties together with this. I know I'm not perfectly going verse by verse, but God sets something in between, but this ties back to what we're talking about. He says, you shall observe my statutes and judgments and perform them, and you will dwell in the land in safety and the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. In other words, if they were observing this pattern, six on, one off with the land. Verse 20, God knows humanity. Here's human nature. And if you say, because you know some of them would, well, wait a minute. Well, what are we going to eat in the seventh year? Since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce, God says, then I will command, verse 21, my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough, look at this, underline it, for three years. God said, in the sixth year, I'll give you such a bumper crop 
that he says what you receive in the sixth year won't be a typical amount of provision. It will be enough of a bumper crop to carry you through for three years because they would give rest in the seventh year. But then in the eighth year, when they started plowing and planting again, there would still be a gap of time by the time they sowed it and then it ultimately came in and they could reap and harvest. And God knew that. God knew what their need was. So God says, look, I'm going to give you enough in the sixth year. Your profitability margin in the sixth year of your business will be so incredible that it will carry you all the way through for three years if you needed it. I'll provide for you. You do things my way. God says, manage my resources, my opportunities, my vocational opportunity. And God says, you do it my way. I'll bless you. I'll take care of you. Now, as God told them to do this, he says, and you shall sow in the eighth year and eat in old produce until the ninth year, until its produce comes in and you shall eat the old harvest. Now, here's the thing. What does the greed of humanity say though? Here's where greed comes into play. In the sixth year, see, God always honors his word. Sixth year, boom, this major bumper crop. God blesses the work of their hands and the, the fruitfulness, the harvest, the, the abundance of profitability comes in incredibly in the sixth year. But then something in humanity goes, wow, could you imagine, if we, if we pulled this in the sixth year, if we worked the seventh year, could you, could you imagine what might happen? We got to work the seventh. I mean, I know what God says, but I mean, man, we got to strike while the iron's hot. The profit margins are great right now. The opportunity is here. The profitability, we got to capitalize on this. And the greed of humanity would say, we, we, we got to work the seventh year. We, we, we got we to take it in while we can get it. And so the greed of their humanity would say, we just, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. <laughs> just a little bit more. And rather than being content with what God supplied and saying, look, I'll take care of you. I will supply enough. It's always good to just trust what God supplies and let that be enough he knows what we need and to just let him be in control of it he knows exactly what we need and he always supplies above and beyond often what we need because he's gracious to us he gives us bumper crops in our life and he blesses beyond many times we've all seen that not just sufficient but he even gives us the excess at times to carry us through for the thing that's going to happen two months from now that we don't even know you know the the stove's going to break down two months from now but god's i know the stove's going to break down in two months i'll, I'll make sure it's there when you need it and, and the Lord always does that for us. But that greediness of us, being drive, drive, I've got to work more, get more. It's that greediness that makes us get off track. Makes us, as it would make them, work more than they should. And so they disobeyed this. Now here's another side why they would disobey this. I think it's not just greed. Another temptation is fear. Not just greed, but fear. Because people also would no doubt do this. Well, I mean, I know... I mean, I know God says he's going to provide for us, but I mean, that doesn't seem lazy not to work for a whole year. I mean, if we don't work in that seventh year, what if that bumper crop doesn't last long enough to, I mean, we got to look out for ourselves. I mean, we got to be responsible. And so fear, lack of trust, lack of faith that God will provide and that they could rest in the Lord and that he would take care of them would also no doubt precipitate in them an anxiousness that self-sufficiency, not just the greedy human spirit, but the self-sufficiency that doesn't want to trust God and God's ways of working, says, you know, I don't. I mean, we got to work, man. Because if we don't do this, what if God doesn't come through? What if God doesn't take care of us? So they couldn't rest in that seventh year. We got to work. And maybe those are just two examples of many of what have been caused their disobedience to do this. But you can see that where again Jesus says, no, seek first the kingdom of God. 
and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you. We don't have to be greedy and driven. We don't have to be fearful and lack trust in the Lord. We can just do things God's way. And the wonderful thing is, what a restful thing. When we do things God's ways, he blesses, he provides. And the reality is, is when we disobey and disregard God's way of doing things, here's the thing. Have you ever noticed? You never get ahead. Because just like God kicked him out of the land and, and God said, look, okay, you don't want to give me those years of rest? You want to try and steal it from me? God said, I'll just take it back from you. And in a different way, God, and, and I, tell, I have seen this where at times if we withhold from the Lord what's rightfully due from him, he'll, he'll get it back in some other way. You're not going to rob God. <laughs> it never works. We never get ahead when we try and disregard God's ways. Better to just live by faith and follow God's principles and standards and to honor the way that God says to do things in all of our affairs. In all of our affairs. Whatever it may be that God has us put our hand to as they would put their hand to working their fields to just say, Lord, I'm going to live by obedience. I'm going to be faithful, but I need to realize I'm a steward. And, and being faithful and being a steward also means sometimes I live by faith. And there's a balance between being faithful and being a steward and also living by faith and just trusting the Lord and finding that proper balance there. And the wonderful thing is when we come into that type of a pattern and an experience, there's tremendous blessing available for us. And when we deviate from that, it, it only harms us in the process. You know, maybe this is a good place even this evening to just kind of let that resonate in our hearts as we go back into a time of worship because maybe you're facing a situation right now that you're trying to resolve what's the right way and you're ready to just jump in the Lord saying, ah, why don't you put that in a holding pattern and, and just seek the mind of the Lord for a day or two or whatever. Or maybe you're looking at a situation and logic and human rationale saying, do it this way, do it that way. And you know clearly, no, that's not God's pattern. God says, this is the way to do things. And so by faith and obedience, I'm going to do things God's way. And, and trust the Lord. Here's the thing. Let me leave you with this. Give God a chance to work. Give God a chance to show you that when he says to do things his way, that he'll fulfill his word. Give him a chance to work. Don't miss the opportunity. For